Welcome to the Standard Age Podcast, a casual conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. I can't thank you enough for listening as these episodes have been a wonderful supplement to the line of apparel that I'm thrilled to share is steadily growing. If you like what you hear, please visit standard-h.com and sign up for our email list. The website not only hosts every episode of this show, but also allows you to explore the entire product assortment and our latest travel recommendations. As an email subscriber, you will be the first to receive product release information as well as receive offers no one else is privy to. Just visit standard-h.com for more information. Seeing Standard H worn by a growing number of watch enthusiasts has been incredibly cool to witness, so chances are good if you're listening to this, you're probably an enthusiast already. However, if not, it makes no difference as Passion Find Jewelry welcomes everyone into their shop in Solana Beach, California. If you're already in deep, you'll know some of the brands that Tim Jackson and his team carry, which are some of the most highly sought-after independent watch manufacturers sold today. Names like Roger Smith, Grunfeld, Kudoke, Habring, Sarpaneva, and many more. If you can't make it to California, visit passionfinejewelry.com for their entire offering online. This episode is also brought to you by Contonement. Contonement's flagship product, the Kerchief, is a perfect medium between a handkerchief and a bandana. Featuring iconic designs such as the Fender Stratocaster and the dashboard of a Volkswagen GTI, these utilitarian cloths are an item that should be a mainstay in your everyday carry. Tuck one in a back pocket or use one as a neckerchief. Visit them at contonement.co, that's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T dot co, and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off everything in their online shop. Now let's get to the show. Asher Rapkin and I met through a mutual friend in the watch space. Our good friend Brandon actually sold me my first IWC, and he sold Asher an independent or two from none other than Passion Fine Jewelry. Long story short, Asher and I were connected via text, and the conversations started flowing. As an IWC fan, I was immediately obsessed with the C3 from Collective Horology, Asher's limited edition collaborative watch business he co-founded and runs with his childhood best friend, Gabe Riley. Sadly, I missed out on the C3 on its release, However, I was able to pick one up secondhand and absolutely love it. What I love most about Collective is the fact their designs alongside the wonderful companies and watchmakers with whom they work never feel like designed by committee, even though their results derive from several opinions involved. Asher is from New York City, so we spend a fair amount of time discussing his upbringing, his career in marketing at the likes of MTV and Facebook, and a band called Fish. I'm always interested in what Asher has to say because everything he says is so well-considered and often thought-provoking, which makes me feel very fortunate to call him a friend. Needless to say, I'm excited about my conversation with Asher, so let's get to it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Asher, great to see you. I always enjoy speaking with you, so I'm excited for this conversation for sure. Uh, in addition to that, you just got off of a recording, so um, I hope you're not too tired of talking about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm ha- so it's good to see you too, man. And um, no, I'm very happy because the last uh, I just got off a recording of um, of Scottish watches. Um, and we were talking about um, a watch that um, by, I'm sure by the time this goes live will we'll have already been public, which is um, 
a watch with a, a really great independent watchmaker that um, we did in partnership with some friends in England, the limited edition. So uh, I didn't get to talk about myself, which is awesome, because we were just talking about James, the James Lamb, the watchmaker that uh, that we were featuring. So OK, great. This will be a, this will be a fun pivot. OK, sweet. Well, um, Plus you get a lot more hair than Ricky, so it's a very good vibe. <laughs> Love you, Ricky. Uh, Ricky and I do not know one another, but I do know of Ricky and enjoy Scottish watches. So um, He's a good man. Sweet. Well, listen, I wanted to kind of start with just the idea and what community means to you. Oh, geez. Uh, okay, so... Ultimately, you know, forget about watches. I, I, I've just always been into, on a personal level, you know, niche niche communities or subcultures of, of one nerdy variety or another. Okay. You know, as a, as a little kid, like, I you know, loved Star Trek, went to Star Trek conventions, you know, grew up and became ever so slightly less nerdy or maybe more nerdy, depending on how you want to talk about it, by going to tons of jam band shows and fish shows you know, the dead. Oh, we'll get into that traveler. for sure. <laughs> cool. Um, you know, and each of these, each of these like various different subcultures, they, you know, they, they, they not only give you an, a home, but they, they help you feel, and this is going to sound intense, but I mean it, they make you feel so much less alone mm-hmm. because there's this feeling that like that, that whatever it is that you like, whatever fantasy world you go to in your head, whatever passion you have, that there's somebody else out there that, that feels that way and that gets you, mm-hmm. you know? Whether it's you know whether it's the you know the crunchy dude at at the fish show or um, or the guy who who understands your reference to some stupid Ferengi joke you know right and all of this stuff um, to me like that's that's community it's 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 this feeling that like you're just welcome in a room of strangers you know I think it, to piggyback on what you're saying is I think a lot of people forget that humans are pack animals right like we're community type <laughs> people you know. Um, yeah. And the pandemic only exposed the greater percentage of my friends that are introverts, which I was unaware of prior to the pandemic, because <laughs> I, I had just copious amounts of friends who are like, oh, man, this is amazing. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to see anybody. I don't have to do anything. You know, how long did that last, though? Did they because my wife is, is a, a very proud introvert. Right. And even she got to a point where she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I'm over this. Do you find it funny that most introverts are proud to be introverts, whereas you've never heard one extrovert be like, yeah, I'm an extrovert and brag about it? Because like, I feel well, like I'm introverts not, brag about it. I'm proud of being an extrovert. I'm just, I'm just like a class. I'm just neurotic. So maybe it's like if you're an extrovert, you're neurotic. And if you're an introvert, you're proud. I don't know. Can oh, that's, that? that's a really, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's a really valid outlook. Or Which I guess probably makes sense, right? Be- yeah. Because I guess if you're an extrovert, you're probably concerned about what other people think about you, you know, maybe, I don't know. Well, you're you know, certainly sort of... exposed to the opinions far more, right? Sure, so, 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe, and some, uh, there's things that I've always, like, I've learned from my wife as an introvert, you know, like, she will regularly remind me, like, why do you care what person X thinks? Like, why are you so obsessed with y, X, Y, or Z? Mm. You know, and, and I'm I'm jealous of her ability to be like, meh. Do you find that there's a common answer to that question, regardless of the subject? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think, um, well, I mean, well, look, I grew up, uh, I'm a New York Jew, so I think neuroticism is just like coded into my DNA, you know? 
but that's but that's that's a dodge i think i think sometimes it's you know at least for me you know i there's so many things that i care about and when i feel like i'm putting myself out there like there's always a fear of did i screw up did i make a bad choice you know um but then i also am you know but then i also am addicted to putting myself out there mm-hmm. so I, I I don't know if that's like if that's like a, a an addiction cycle or a flywheel, right. <laughs> but it's definitely like a personality trait. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I definitely want to get into like your your kind of upbringing in New York for sure. Sure. Um, what was that like? Do you, is there any like standout memory in particular from growing up? I mean, obviously everybody has like a million memories, right? Yeah. But like, what what do you like? What would you say you remember most about growing up in New York City? As somebody who's like always aspired to live there, but now I'm like kind of too old to move there. Uh, <laughs> well, I once got told that to be happy in New York, you need to be either young or rich. Yeah. One or the other. 100%. Um, I am neither anymore. So, <laughs> but um, I mean, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm married with two children in a small town in California, and I'm keenly aware that my children's existence will be very, or their, their experience rather of growing up will be very different than, than mine was. Sure. You know, for me, um, so much of it was defined by, um, this feeling of, of like enclosed, uh, um, enclosed adventure, like New York, New York to me is very much a, I, I don't want this to sound like, you know, snake plisken you know, kind of style New York, but it's like, it's an enclosed space. Sure. And even though it's gigantic, like it feels, it feels like it, it's its own thing. And within that space growing up, like I, I explored, I, you know, my parents, when I was 10 years old was the first, you know, I started being allowed to walk to school by myself. Although I only found out a couple of years ago that my dad was actually following me, um, a block behind. Oh really? So, yeah. So, you know, I'm like, Hey, also, you know, aw, but right. whatever. But, you know, I, I would take the subway everywhere, you know, I'd get in taxi cabs, you know, and this was long before cell phones, right? So you, you were just out in the world until you were told to come home, mm. and that was kind of it. And, um, you know, I, I, I so for me, so many of the memories that I have are about these little, you know, corners of New York that, that I used to haunt because I loved them, like, you know, Mott Street in Chinatown, where I know where, you know, where I get like my favorite, you know, dumplings where I still go, you know, or, or uh, places that aren't there anymore, like the Wetlands, a, a great music club, um, you know, from the 1980s and the 1990s uh, in lower Manhattan, mm-hmm. you know, which now is, are these beautiful, expen- quote unquote, beautiful, expensive high rises. And back then it was just a total shithole, but had this amazing oasis in it. Totally. Of, um, you know, of, of music. Uh, you know, or, or just little things like, like, you know, hanging out in Central Park with your friends in the summer, you know? So, so there are these like sporadic memories here and there of it that really define the experience of it for me. But, you know, I try not to fall into that bucket of like, oh, well, you know, growing up in New York, like really shaped me as an artist or what? No, I mean, like growing up in New York is like growing up anywhere, but it, 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 for being such a, for being such a just dramatically, well-known city and so big it's amazing how small and welcoming it can feel sure if that's just how what you think of as home yeah you know one thing i've always said about new york like obviously never having lived there though is is you're constantly sharing a wall with somebody you know (laughs) you know sharing many walls with yeah 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 (laughs) so like your your like potential to to feel away from everything even when you're at home to 
you know, quote unquote, get away from it all, you're not really getting away from anyone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, so the, the, a fascinating thing about big city living, at least in my opinion, is this this forced anonymity, even though proximity is so high. Mm. You know, spend just ride a subway car that's packed, and you're li- you are physically touching strangers. You know, um, and yet you and yet no, no one acknowledges one another. Right. So there's um, there there is an anonymity and a privacy that's sort of forced and built in to the experience of living in a place like New York, mm-hmm. where if I was, you know, in, in a similar situation here, it would be uh, shocking and creepy. But in New York, it's just like, that's how it is. You're just pressed against people. Yeah. You know? Um, and uh, in that sense, I think it really like, like there's so much of an internal life that happens in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, like I listen to music so much more in New York than I do here because I'm just constantly in headphones because that was a way to to just like have your space. Right. You know? Right. Which is different than than, you know, California living, you know, where, yeah, sure, you have a car with an amazing sound system and blah, blah, blah. But um but I, I don't feel but I feel very like expanded, you right. know, compared to the way that I would have been growing up as a New Yorker. Yeah, I think walking around with headphones and quite literally exposed to the elements feels like you're in your own little world, even more so than in a car, because the car is what's doing the navigating, not you physically, mm-hmm. right? So. Yeah, and, and it's funny too that you mentioned the navigating thing because like that's a skill in New York, yeah. learning how to weave through the streets. And I'm taking my daughter, who's uh, five years old, to New York um, for the first time as like a cogent child. Um, she came when she was 10 months. This will be her first time really experiencing it. And there are these things that I keep trying to explain to her about like the you know existence in New York. Like, you know, we're, like, we're going to have to bob and weave and... Um, Things are really loud, you know, and, and everything is just like the, the sensory experience of the city is so profoundly different than the sensory experience of like a cul-de-sac in a sleepy beach town. Right. And, you know, and these are things that like they're skills that like I've lost. Like, I don't know how to bob and weave in Midtown anymore, you know. Right. Um, I've uh, I've lost a little bit of the eye in the back of my head in terms of like, you know, identifying a shady character or two. And these are skills that like I want to get better at so I can give them to my daughter so that if she ever wants to live in New York or anywhere else that like she, you know, she doesn't come across looking like a, looking like a country mouse. Right, right. How often do you get back to the city? You know, before I had before we had our kids, um, I used to go very regularly. And now, you know, my parents still live there um, and I try to go. I try to go a few times a year, but um, as you can attest, like the the older you get, the longer that flight feels. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and like going from LAX to JFK is like a ten hour thing between the gates and the this and the that, and you know. So um, and being away from from a family, you know, where, where I'm leaving my my two kids with my wife, and you know, my wife's traveling for work this weekend, and vice versa. Like it's a lot. Yeah. So as much as I love New York, like I have to go, you know, less than I want because of of the realities of family life right yeah that makes a lot of sense you said you're you're in california i know you're in ventura which is you know i guess just south of santa barbara but north of los angeles um were you in the bay area before yeah okay yeah i lived in the bay area twice i moved there um right after right after college um okay to take a job my first job in television and um, they, you know, the job was basically like, if you can get here in a week and a half, you can have the job. And I was like, cool. <laughs> oh wow, what was the gig? Um, so I, before I ever got into watches professionally, long before I ever got into watches professionally, um, I spent um, uh, about twenty years in in marketing. 
And the first 10 years of that marketing career was in television. And it started at a television network that doesn't exist anymore called um, Current TV. And Current TV was uh, started in, oh, geez, I think it was 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was founded by Al Gore, actually. Um, wow. It was, uh, yeah, it was his project after, um, after the, the uh, loss of 2000. And he started this network, and, and basically the idea, and this predates YouTube, mind you, the idea was to use user-generated content, these short-form, what the network called pods, basically seven to eight minute long content, you know, well, pods, <laughs> that were uh, submitted by users. So it was user-generated content on network, tele- or uh, cable television, more specifically. And, um, you know, there was some original content that was produced, but, but a lot of it was around user generation. Even the ads, um, many of the ads were user generated. It was really, really cool. Hmm. And, um, you know, there were all sorts of funky things about it. Like we couldn't get rated because, you know, no one knew how to rate that. Right. You know, even like the digital, I used to submit like, you know, you know, when you go on TV and you see like the digital programming guides, it's like, oh, what's on TV? So like th- there is some poor schmuck that was me who actually submits that crap to Tribune Media Services every uh you know every week and i used to do that and it was impossible like i literally just had like long blocks that was like content (laughs) um but uh, but anyway i was like a junior marketing guy there and um you know i i started uh, i did all sorts of fun stuff um, that i had no business doing at the at the the skill level that i had um and uh, I subsequently ended up working at a couple other networks over those 10 years from current TV to uh, uh, MTV to NBC um, and uh, spent. So I bounced around from network to network until my early 30s. Well, what was it like working at MTV? And what year was that? So I worked at MTV from 2008 till 2010 or 11. Okay. Um, and you know, for me, I, I like, look, it was really cool. I mean, I, I, you know, I was born in 1982, so I grew up, um, watching MTV Yeah. and MTV was like a big cultural thing for me, you know, like spring break was a thing. The VMAs were a thing. The movie awards were a thing. I watched TRL, you know, and, um, like these were all like these, these were, you know, pre internet cultural moments. Like if you wanted to hear the new single from Eminem or whatever, you know, you were going to see it on TRL. And, um, you know, so for me getting to work at MTV was, was an incredible moment. Cause you walk in those doors, you know, at 1515 Broadway and you know, the, the, you go into the TRL studio and it's like right there, you know, it's, it's there. You get in the elevator and you know, there's someone famous in the elevator with you. And that's, that was my first time encountering like the mundanity of, um, of, of fame. Right. You know, where it's like you get into an elevator and, and there's Taylor Swift and she's just like standing there, you know, and you're like, oh, hi, <laughs> you know, hi. And that, like, that's it. You know, it's like, it, and it's not like, it's not like, oh my God, it's just, we're in the elevator. Right. You're a human that's being. It. Right. Exactly. You know, and, um, but so for me, like that was exciting and I got to work on, you know, some, all these shows that, that I had, you know, watched forever, like the real world, you know, or, um, and in my, my job there was actually working with movie studios. So I would um, pitch them on creative ideas for marketing their films on, on MTV. So I got to work on movies like I Love You, Man and oh, cool. Star, uh, Star Trek. And yeah. So for you know a guy in his early 20s, it was an incredible job to get to learn how to do all of that and the mechanics of it and then to do it in, in that kind of a setting. So um, I, uh, I, really, I really enjoyed my time at MTV. I still have friends from that era, too. I mean, it was... It was a really, it was a really odd and interesting place to work. Right. Wait, so how did you get, well, I guess you didn't leave marketing per se, but how did you get in with Facebook? 
obviously, because you're. Yeah. So before, so I, I always was a bit of a, a tech nerd and computer geek, if you were growing up, and and I loved loved uh, Apple computers. Yeah. You know, when I was in elementary school, you know, I learned how to code um, very basic, like literally use basic on like, you know, the, the an Apple II, 2E or 2GS. And I had, a, I had an Apple clone, a Laser 128K that I used to play, you know, uh, uh, old school games like uh, Oregon you know, Trail in San Diego. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, Axel's broken. Shoot the buffalo. Yeah. Um, Dysentery. And <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. Um so I, I I idolized Steve Jobs growing up. Like I used to read MacWorld magazine and and all that, wow. all that crap. Yeah. And um, I always wanted to work at Apple. And I tried. I tried every every single year. I would put. I would like look on the job board and apply. Nothing. Look on the job board. Apply. Nothing. And I got called by a recruiter from Apple when I worked at NBC um, because one of Steve's last projects before he left and subsequently passed was to start an advertising platform at Apple called iAd. Mm. And, uh, you know, this recruiter sends me an email on LinkedIn. It's like, hi, you know, uh, we just uh, were looking for someone to run marketing for IAD. Uh, if this would be of interest to you. And I was like, bah, which started a, a 11 and a half month interview process. I kid you not. Wow. That ultimately resulted in me in me getting a job at Apple, which. Um, Did you have to like write an essay or something or like. <laughs> I just I just was interviewed by like a million and a half people um, over a long period of time, because, you know, when you're applying for a job, it's like all you think about, but nobody else cares. Was there. Yeah, no, no. I know exactly what you mean. Was there any question that stood out where you were just like, oh, shit, how am I going to get through this? What I think I learned in that interview process, which has subsequently served me really well, is the realization that, you know, I think when you start interviewing for jobs, or at least when I started interviewing for jobs, like I always wanted to try and convince someone that like I was who they were looking for versus what I think is a more successful way of interviewing, which is just being yourself. Mm -hmm. And if somebody's really attracted to you and the way you think and the way you're going to work, then that's always going to work out better than if they bought some sort of like perfected version of yourself. Right. Like don't sell yourself, just be yourself. Yeah, exactly. And, and I understand why people are nervous about that because it's like, oh, I got I really got to get the job like da, 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 da. But, yeah. you know, in the end, the way I always look at it is like if you are yourself and you get the job. Yeah. Then they really wanted you. you know? Yeah, I think that's fair because, I mean, at the end of the day, nobody really wants to be sold anything. They just want to buy stuff that they like. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? It's true. It's true. And, and I think also hiring managers the best hiring managers are the ones who like really do go into an interview with an open mind and sometimes come out, you know, like some, one of the best person, one of the best people I ever hired is somebody that I remember reading their resume and being like, no way. And then meeting with them and I, you know, subsequently hiring them because they were just incredible. Mm -hmm. And it, it only works if you're, if you're, you know, open-minded to that. So to go to your point, like, I don't know if there was like a question, but I just decided, I'm like, if I'm going to, if I'm going to work here, you know, if I'm going to get this job, it's going to be because somebody really wants me not because I'm going to try to like fit the mold of whatever an Apple employee, you know, is. Right. Um, That's good advice. But yeah, I mean, look, I, I will tell you though, it was it, it, to this day from like a professional standpoint, just like there, there was like the, the 13 year old in me when I got to, when I walked in the doors at one infinite loop, you know, and, 
got my Apple badge and just all of it. It just, it was, you know, sat, sat down, had lunch. And like Johnny Ive was, you know, eating lunch there too. And I'm like, it's Johnny Ive. Right. You know, like for me, it just was, it, it was like this, this incredible moment. It wasn't like a job. It was like a thing. Like my wife made fun of me because when Steve Jobs died, like I cried and we had only been dating for a few months and she's like, what the fuck is wrong with this right. guy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like probably probably still answering that question to this right. day, but <laughs> yeah. you know, but I, I, I just I felt I used to really feel a deep passion for that place, mm-hmm. and getting to work there was just like a very it it put me on the path, you know, to much earlier question of like you know working in tech, yeah. But it, ultimately, I, I didn't take the job because I wanted to work in tech. I took the job because I wanted to work at Apple. Right. And that's kind of what set me on that path. Well, know? it was so ingrained in your life just with the experience of using their computers, right? Like, so it was embedded early on probably as just a product you enjoyed using and then let alone growing older and understanding Steve as a human being and his contribution to God, just the way the world is now. You know what I mean? Well, it, Apple was also a rep, was representative of counterculture for so long. A hundred percent. You know, my and dad, like, my dad was an IBM guy. So like, yeah, it like, yeah, Apple was never even talked about in our house ever, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and that's pre Lenovo and all that, you know, I mean, it's just. Yeah, we never talked about Apple until I got into snowboarding DVDs and understood that everybody edited snowboarding videos on on Mac computers. And I was like, oh, dude, I got to get me a, a MacBook, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it for so long, you know, being an Apple customer, being an Apple user was this like, you know, it was like this secret thing where it's like, oh, you use Macs? Right. Like, cool. You know, like. Like that's it awesome. was like the creative yeah. suite, right? Like yeah, that was exactly. It. Well, that was the other thing. It's like artists, musicians, filmmakers, like they all used Macs. You know, it was the stodgy like office types that that would use you know Microsoft PCs. products. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and there was that divide. Um, you know, obviously that's that's not all of that's done now, but mm-hmm. there was there was that period. And um, you know, I th- it's like that. It's like one of the most iconic ad campaigns really exemplified that the Think Different campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like had nothing to. It, th- there was nothing in there about the product. It was just look. These are all the people that are the oddballs, the weirdos, the outcasts. Like, this is who we idolize. You know, um, and there was a time. You know, even when I was there at the 35th anniversary of the Mac. You know, where they 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 once again put the Jolly Roger up over Apple headquarters. And even though that didn't really feel appropriate for a company of a multi-billion dollar market cap in the way that it was at the time, it was a nod to that era when all of those folks who worked at Apple were pirates, you know? Right. And were really just, it's just like they did, they were going against the grain of everything. Right. And um, there's something about that that I will always admire and love. And having an opportunity to be inside those walls for a couple of years was something that I, I honestly will, will always cherish. Oh, that's awesome. So then that bridged the gap, I guess, over to Facebook eventually. Yeah. So I went to Facebook in 2015. Um, it was a very different company then. Right. Uh, much smaller. You know, uh, I think there were 10,000 full-time employees when I joined, which is big by most standards. Sure. Relative to, to when I left um, in 2022, you know, the company was, I, I think, with, with the I don't know the exact number, but I, I think with, with contingent workers, it was probably six figures of employees. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, and there's an internal tool at, at at Facebook where you can see how long you had been there relative to everybody else. And by the time I left, I think it was I had been there longer than like ninety eight percent of the people who had who had been there. Wow. Yeah. So for me, that was a really interesting experience because, you know, in the beginning when I was there, it was still a pretty young company, and so much of what was happening in there was like experimentation and curiosity and people generally, you know, really trying to like figure out big problems and do the right thing. And, um, you know, uh, over time it, it grew and, and I think there's still a lot of beautiful things about the company, but it's it, now it's just, a, it, it's a very big company, you know, and that's a very different kind of vibe and feeling than when you are going in a place and going into the doors of a place and you, and you really feel like you're, you're, you're building it, you know? And when, when Gabe, my partner and I started our company five years ago, give or take, you know, I think part of it, part of what that, that has done for us while we were still working at, at, at Facebook and building Collective was that Collective really gave us that outlet to be able to have that entrepreneurial, adventurous spirit of like, there's more work than the two of us can handle, you know? So everybody does everything, you know? And the people who do whatever they're doing, they're doing it because they're better at it than the other person. There's things Gabe's, uh, Gabe does for collective that I'm terrible at and vice versa. Sure. You know, versus the way corporations structure it, which is like, congratulations, you know, individual contributor level six, you will complete the following tasks on this day. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just, it's, it's not necessarily bad. It's just different. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally get it. What were the teams like there? Like size wise, like, cause w- what's the psychology, right? Like teams work yeah. best in 11 or fewer people or something like that. Yeah. I feel like people are always surprised when I tell them, but like, you know, my teams, you know, and, and I was, I wasn't super senior at, at Facebook, but I was senior enough. And, you know, so I, I built and ran a few teams and, they were never very big. I think the biggest team I ever ran was like eight folks internationally. Yeah. You know, just recently I was working on um, on virtual reality, augmented reality, and things like that. Right before I left, and my team was uh, three people. Yeah, that's great. You know, all you know, incredible humans, but three people. And it's it's funny when you say that to someone because they think you know hundred thousand employees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but in reality, like a lot of the work is done. You know, in these these small working groups, mm-hmm. and I actually think that's great. Because that's great for career development. It's great for relationships. You know, it creates a good environment. Because with three people working on something, like, everybody has to work. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? Like, no one's hiding. Right. When you have a team of, like, 55 people, like, there could be someone just, like... Loafing. You know, off in the yeah. corner. Yeah, just moving stuff around inside of Google Docs, you know? Yeah, totally. But but when it's three people, like, everybody knows everything and everyone has to support each other. It is kind of funny. You just said that you worked at Facebook or now Meta and people are using Google Docs. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. There's like a certain <laughs> irony to that, but um, yeah, that's funny. Well, you mentioned Fish earlier because I want to talk music with you. Yeah, um, Fish was actually one of the first bands I ever saw live. It wasn't the first, but it was maybe I don't know within my first maybe five concerts, I guess. Oh, cool. um, what, what do you remember? What show that was? It would have been certainly in the '90s, maybe '90. 6 97 maybe it was at mm, it was so at that walnut was the cow funk phase i mean it was walnut <laughs> creek amphitheater and it rained and i just yeah. remember seeing lightning coming down and they had i think they stopped the show for a few minutes but nobody went anywhere so we we're just sitting in the rain and then mm-hmm. yeah it was it was amazing 
right? Like it was very memorable in that sense. Like I'll never forget seeing lightning over the amphitheater and I just knew. And then of course it's fish. And and the funny thing is, is that's the only time I've ever seen them live. <laughs> so I've, I've seen that band, I don't even know, 30, 40 times, which in, you know, relative to any normal human is like a way, like too many times to see a band. Right. But for fish is like probably not that impressive. Right, right. <laughs> You know, and, and there's a lot of folks and a lot of good reason to make fun of fish and, and, you know, fish fans. But I think, you know, for me, it was I remember going to my first fish show, which was around the same era. I think it was um, 97. And I had just never seen something like that before. Like I had seen improvisational music in the context of jazz, but like I wasn't musically mature enough to really understand what was happening. Right. You know, and, and that's that to me, like that's always the bummer with jazz in the sense that some of it's very melody driven, some of it's very technical, some of it's both and some of it's neither. And, you know, if you get hit with the wrong, the wrong introduction, it like turns you off hypothetically to the whole genre, which is an extreme bummer. Right. With Fish, you know, I remember going in and I just had never seen people improvise music in that way before. And I had never seen a crowd of people react to that music in that way before and it you know I had just started learning how to play guitar you know myself I ultimately gave that up and became a bass player but I I remember just watching that and it just like I had never put you this way I had never gone to a show where I didn't get bored at some point and I never not for one second was bored at that show and it just it, it changed my mind about what was possible. And at that point, you know, you asked me earlier about community. There were these proto communities that existed. Totally. You know, in the early days of the internet there, like fish.net, where you would literally meet up at set break with people who would go to a payphone and call in the set list for all the people at home to be able to see what had just been played. And then you could add yourself to what was called a tape tree, which was basically, you know, a taper because you were allowed to legally tape fish shows with tape, with taper tickets would take those, those tapes they would then go home, make copies. They'd send it to their people on the tree. And then their people on the tree would send it to their people on the tree. And there was a certain level of status in the community of like how high you were on the tree because that also meant that you had higher quality recordings. Right, right. Because it was, you know, you weren't like 10, 10, 11, you weren't 12 the 10th photocopies dub. down the yeah. road. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On some shitty like, you know, tape deck from Radio Shack. And like, so there is like a whole proto community there of these like packages being shipped all around the world and subculture of how people would decorate the like J card for their, you know, for the cassette tape and the whole thing. And, um, you know, it, it really was um, for an awkward teenager like me, an incredibly welcoming community that I think set me up to be open minded with things in ways that I might not have been otherwise. That's really cool, man. I think uh, there's probably very few bands that offer that same sentiment. You know, I feel like there's, it's interesting because there, there are like, there are other bands I feel like have cultures that are really tied to them that, that do, you know, encourage open-mindedness and diversity. Like Pearl Jam did it for a while. I feel like there's like a big touring community around them from like the, the nineties the on tool believe it or not. I totally like, agree with you. Dave Matthews band, of course. For sure. For sure. Um, you know, and these, it, it, it's just, there's like, 
Uh, Blue Traveler is another one. I mean, Gabe Riley, my partner, actually used to work for Blue Traveler. Oh, is that right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. He he uh, he was an intern for Blue Traveler. He would uh, he would organize all of Popper's. Uh, um, backstock harmonicas um, for because uh, John Popper would you know blow out the reeds of virtually every harmonica he plays at every show, so he he like literally has to buy like three four five hundred harmonicas for every tour. So you need some guy to organize that. <laughs> the, that was the other interesting thing about all these bands. So many of them actually came out of like similar communities. Yeah. So like both Fish and Blues Traveler came out of Princeton, New Jersey. Like as high school, like Trey Anastasio and um, yeah. uh, John Popper. Yeah. You know they all grew up in the same like like just melting pot of of uh uh suburban you know mediocrity it's like yeah it's it's so interesting to see how this stuff happens oh that's crazy does gabe play the harmonica i think he will play a harmonica (laughs) understood (laughs) okay fair enough oh man that's funny so you play bass yeah do you still mess around I do. I wish I, um, I suspect as my kids get older, I'll probably start playing again more. It's right now, you know, with a five-year-old and a two-year-old, it's, it's, it's hard to do much of, of anything. Right. Um, but I, I love it and I miss it. You know, bass is, um, is such a wonderful instrument and it's so much fun to play, you know, and I, I, I also grew up in that era where electric bass was like very much a focus. And, and there are some bass players like from that world, like, uh, Victor Wooten, I don't yeah, know if you ever came across of him. course, yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, Victor Wooten was one of my one of my bass playing idols, and you know, uh, I just it, it's the kind of thing where you'd hear him play, and that's just not the sound that ever came out of that instrument right. before to me. Like, that's just you know, um, and that really sent me down a path that moved me away from guitar playing. Um, so, I never was a very good guitar player. So, I, um, I played drums and was like the two people encouraged me or I guess motivated me to play drums one Carter Beauford who's the drummer yeah Dave Matthews crazy crazy drummer and uh Victor Wooten would sit in with those guys on live shows from time to time um and then of course you have Flea you've got Les Claypool like all those 90s bands of you know Primus Red Hot Chili Peppers they just blew your hair back with the bass guitar (laughs) you know what I mean well and the thing is like that's what I wanted to do. Like when I graduated college, what I wanted to do was be a touring manager. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, it's funny. I, so when I graduated from college, I had um, I, I worked at this this Mac store, this uh, this free this Apple store in New York called TechServe, which no longer exists. Okay. But, um, it was a great great spot, and uh, you know you, we sold a lot of pro audio gear. So every once in a while, guys would come in from the road. And this one guy came in who was the touring manager, as it turns out, for Alicia Keys. Oh, wow. And I ended up shooting the shit with him for a while. And, you know, just met, and this is me, 21 years old, you know. And, and he's like, well, if you're interested in this sort of thing, like, do you want to come and do you want to do you want to do it? Do you want to come and check it out? He's like, I need a backline tech. He's like, and I was like, oh, OK. So I, you know, I, I spent some time in the studio with him and and um, and then did a couple shows uh, with with him and uh, on the road, like big arena shows. And that, that fixed me up right quick about the idea of wanting to, to work in live music. Really? Um, because yeah, because I feel like when you, when you are growing up and you're a teenager, you're like tour buses, cool, man, like backstage pass, cool. And then you spend time talking to some of these folks, like they never see their families. Right. Like they don't know where they are. Yeah. They don't, some of them don't have houses. Cause why bother? You just live in a bus. Right. And it just, 
even at 21 years old, I looked around and I was like, this just feels lonely. It's way worse you know? than and that flight to JFK becomes as you get older. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I think it was like that first, that first glimpse into like, there's what you see and what you imagine. And then there's the practical reality of it. And now sometimes I look at acts that are touring and I look at the 40 dates and I'm just like, mm-hmm. Oof, yeah, man, brutal. Yeah. So it was very eye opening. So, so I got cured of that right quick. Yeah. What did your parents do when you grew up? So my mom uh, worked in advertising. Uh, so I guess I come by it honestly. Uh, she was the, a, a magazine publisher, and she she would, she worked on magazines like Modern Bride and Food and Wine. Oh, and cool! Condé Nast Traveler, stuff like that. Nice. Um, my dad is an audio producer and has made um, audio books and radio drama for my entire life. Wow! So like he, yeah, so like he directed and produced um, all of the like Harry Potter books on uh, audio tape and. Um, you know, tons and tons of other stuff. Uh, so I, I, I grew up with his studio in our house. Um, Early adopter, I would work. say. Oh, yeah. I mean, he he bought into digital audio workstations like way early. I remember he went like he spent some ungodly amount of money on like a Mac, an Apple Quadra. OK, a Mac Quadra. It was like one of the first towers where and Pro Tools, which is now like, you know, de rigueur, but back then was like seriously special stuff. And I remember him showing me with deep pride how his uh, workstation could have four tracks, four tracks playing at the same time. <laughs> wow. Oh, man, that's yeah. crazy. Are they yeah. both still working today or are they retired? Oh, they'll never. They'll, they, they won't stop working until until their final day. Really? So what magazine's your mom at now? She's a uh, she works on her own now. So she's a freelancer and she's um you know, she's been in she's been in and around the industry since the early 1970s. So. I think um, she knows everything. You know, advertising, yeah, and advertising is just one of those industries where it's like the the technology changes, but the industry is largely the same in many ways. So I think it's one of those places where experience is really valued versus derided. Mm. Is there any lesson that your mom taught you in the advertising world that you still kind of use today? Yeah, I mean, relationships are everything. You know, I mean, it's, it's the, and I guess it's true about any industry really, but, you know, advertising, which is not dissimilar in some ways from, from the watch world in this way, Yeah. you know, your reputation, your, um, you know, your word is really, and your work is ultimately what, why people will talk to you and work with you. Mm -hmm. And if you're, you know, bad work is, is just not. You you can't get away with it, right? You know? And bad reputation, the same. Right? Yeah, yeah. Then no, that's fair. Um, we'll get to collective horology. What's on the wrist though, right now? Ah, I am wearing a, a a relatively new watch for me, but one that um I'm very excited uh, to have, which is a fiftieth uh, anniversary Snoopy. Um, you know, I I putting the hype of this thing aside and and the rest of it, it's um. It's just a really charming watch, and you know, I I I got it after um, I placed my order for it. And, you know, when it came out, I just got it two years later. Right. But it's one of those watches that just has so much soul and whimsy. You know. Yeah. That I I just get such a such a kick out of it. Yeah, it's so funny. Like 
you don't put it into these terms often. You, the collective you, right? Like all of us. Um, not the collective, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> zing. Um, so the, yeah, it's just the fact that Snoopy can live on a watch that's that expensive. You know what I mean? You're just like, I think that it speaks to the whimsy you're, you're, or the whimsical approach that exists well, in that piece. a lot piece. of it also... Yeah, well, you know what's funny is I, I actually don't care for the Silver Snoopy, the one that came before this. I don't like the dial design, um, which is funny because Apollo 13, like I obviously am too young to remember it, but I remember the movie. Right. And like the movie like was one of the most incredible things I'd ever seen. Sure. I still think it's a great film. You know? Yeah. So it's like Apollo 13 culturally is a thing that I, I like. I like space in general, et cetera. So I, I, like, I like the whole story of the Silver Snoopy Award and the rest of it. Yeah. But this one just, I don't know, it... One of the things I have to give up, I think, as I start, as I as I've collected, is I don't take myself very seriously as a collector. Okay. And when you, it's like when you let go of that, so many watches become become interesting and fun. I totally agree you know? with you. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like I, I get sad sometimes when I talk to people and they're and and they have all of these rules for themselves that <laughs> that feel like they've come from from external sources, you know, and and like it doesn't they don't matter. Right. At least in my opinion, like they don't matter. You know, if you like it, it's, it's great. Yes. And, it, and, and it doesn't have to take itself seriously to be a really great watch. You know, it's like pop art is, is art, even if it's not the same as, as like the art that you studied in art history. Totally. So I, I, I don't know. I, to me, this watch represent, I love Speedmasters. you know, I love the story of Apollo 13 and this watch is, it doesn't take itself seriously at all. I mean, for, for God's sake, like Snoopy flies around, you know, the moon on an automaton on the back. Like it's, it's just, it's just fun. Yeah. No, that's great. So speaking of collective horology, uh, you mentioned Gabe Riley, your partner. I believe yeah. you touched on it earlier. The company is now five or so years old, I, I guess at this point. Yeah, we started, we started, you know, the first time we sat down, I found my original notebook too which is always eye-opening when you're like, this is what I thought the business was going to be. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. And I sat down, and I found my original notebook, and it started. It was dated around like uh, February-ish 2018. Because um, I started, started coming up with this when I, was, um, when I was feeling all crazy at home on paternity leave with our first kid. Um, and, uh, now, is this a mead three-ring binder, or is this like a moleskin? No, um, I'm very spendy when it comes to like paper goods. Oh, cool. So, yeah. So my notebook of choice is a Smithson notebook, okay. which I'm sure people will then Google and be like, the fuck is wrong with this guy? Uh, same question your get... wife asks. <laughs> oh, she's been nullified <laughs> on that point. It's, I think she's just come to accept it, but, um, but they're beautiful notebooks. So, so it's that it's this leather bound notebook, et cetera. Um, anyway, cool. so I found that and, um, you know, I, the business has subsequently evolved since then. So yeah, we're coming up on, on five years uh, now, actually, I guess. Like yeah. So what's interesting is when I first learned about you guys, um, which I think I was maybe a year or two late in finding out about you guys, but you guys somehow coax uh, incredible brands uh, <laughs> to work with you and create customized watches with you. Such a, like, I mean, how the hell does somebody who gets together with one of his best friends from what middle school and mm -hmm. says, Hey, IWC, let's make a watch. Like, how does that happen? 
I mean, I think honestly, part of it is never underestimate the confidence you can get from pure ignorance. <laughs> and I'm serious. Like I, I think some like if I looking back now, yeah. Like there are so many things that, and I'm sure this is true for standard H too. I mean, I have to imagine or anyone starting a small business, there are so many lessons that you learn over the course of your life, you know, from everything from the, from the operations to the creative process, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And when you don't know those things, you're not scared that you're going to screw them up. Right. You know, you don't know what you don't know. A hundred percent. So I think for us getting started, we, and I, I say this, I've said this many times and I stand by it. Like we owe a lot to Zenith mm. and to our friend, Rob Kaplan at Topper Jewelers, mm-hmm. who Zenith took a flyer on us and Rob basically ran the operations of the first project. Okay. And we didn't have any visibility into that at all. You know, so in many ways, like what we thought a project was, was so much easier than it actually is mm. because we had a brand that saw something in there, even though we hadn't quite put our finger on it yet, and a partner who was a friend and, and was was willing to help us. And right. so I think I think that, you know, ultimately like that, that's really how it started in in terms of like the business. I had that question written down. It, like whether or not Rob you said Rob, right? At Toppers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah. Like whether or not he was like assisting in, in, in conversations in that way. So, I mean, I guess he so, was sort of a liaison. Yes, kind of. So Rob, I met Rob uh, about 10 years ago. Okay. When I, um, uh, now I think back on it as someone who, who has a retail, a bur- you know, small retail business. And I'm like, God, I was such a dick. Where <laughs> I, I walked in, you know, because I wanted a Nomos. And I tried to negotiate with him on a Nomos. And I'm like, for all the listeners out there, like, I know it's a $3,000 watch, but like, to be real, like, you know, after overhead, like whoever's selling it to you is going to make like $500. So don't be, don't be that guy. Just, just buy the watch. Right. Um, Anyway, so I went and tried to negotiate, but don't be that guy. I mean, don't be me. (laughs) Well, and also don't be the person that like generates four different email accounts just to get the first time buyer's discount with your four (laughs) emails. Like you're an asshole. Like, <laughs> thank you. Okay. We're on the same page. Yeah. Then. We'll put that up on the don't be that guy board. Yeah. But, um, anyway, so, you know, and then over time I would go into the store and, and, you know, we would chit chat and Rob's a very affable, sweet man. And, uh, over time we just became friends and then we became really good friends. And now I, I think of him as one of my best friends. That's you great. Know, we talk almost every day. And it's funny because like, we're both technically competitors now in the sense that he retails fears and I retail fears, you mm. know, but, um, I think it's good evidence that like people can be competitive in a space, but be collegial, not, not combative. Sure. Anyway. Yeah. So in the early days, I remember having a conversation with him before we did our first watch where I, I had this idea about what we wanted to do with collaboration. We sat on this bench in Burlingame outside the Apple store. And I just, I, I took him through it. Like, here's what I think we want to do. Here's like the business model. Like, what do you think? And without missing a beat, he just looked at me and he was like, I'll help you. That's sweet. I was like, yeah, and he and he did. He did. He made introductions on our behalf. He helped us operationally. I know now, back um, looking back, although I, I didn't understand it at the time, I know now that he fronted cash that we didn't even know he fronted. Oh wow! Um, and, and don't get me wrong; like he took profit on the project too. Like it wasn't. 
this wasn't like completely, you know, without benefit to him, but certainly not without risk either. Well, and forgive me for interrupting here, but I guess this is where it backs up my point of coming into the awareness of collective maybe a year or two Mm -hmm. late. I guess I wasn't aware. Did you, I guess you sold those Zenith watches through toppers then? Yes. The original model for, for collective was that shout out toppers by the way. (laughs) Oh yeah. Seriously. (laughs) Topper fine jewelers in Berlin game. Amazing place to go buy a watch. (laughs) Seriously. Just hands down. Um, in the early days, the model was we would co-design, we would design the watch with the brand and then we'd work with an authorized dealer who would handle the import, the payment processing and the delivery of the watches. Mm. And we would essentially split the retail margin with that dealer. And it would be advantageous to the dealer because they would get they wouldn't get their full margin, of course, but they'd get a bulk order, and then we would get X, Y, and Z. But the thing is, over time, it's like when you do that on paper, it looks like a lot of money, but then when you actually amortize that over the time, and then all the marketing costs, and you know, I don't know, compensating yourself, <laughs> right, right, it's not it's not enough. So we had to, and that's actually what led to our retail business because we were like, well, heck. We got to learn how to do this ourselves because we have to be able to to make enough of a margin so that we can we can live off this. Like, forget getting rich, just right. live off it. Yeah. And um, you know, so so our model evolved, but that was a good way to start because it allowed us to to bootstrap it without needing investment um, by using somebody else's infrastructure. You know, it. it I wish I could say that I, I approached that, you know, with like, you know, my, my sharpened pencil from my MBA, which I don't have. Right, right. Um, but it was, it, again, it was dumb luck driven by pure sweet ignorance. Right. And friendship, I guess, at the end of the day. Yes. Um, absolute friendship. And uh, Rob, uh, you know, Rob did a lot for us and continues to do a lot for us, um, you know, just like, uh, just like we will for him. He's a, he's a genuine, he's a genuinely good human. Sure. So how do you divvy up the, the, the to-do tasks and lists with you and Gabe? Like, who does what? Is it, is it standard? Like, you guys have your roles, or, or does it change? No. I mean, there are areas that I think I tend to, to get into, and I think areas that he tends to. And then there's just things that, like, we each, you know, like Gabe, Gabe learned how to build the shop, so he tends to operate a lot of, like, the back end. I see not for any great love of it, but like he just knows how to do it better than I can. Right. Right. Um, I tend to focus a lot on business development, identifying our roadmap, you know, we both, and then we both wring our hands all the time over how we want to grow and how we want to do that in a way that, that feels honest and transparent. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating to, transition from being a consumer of something that you love mm-hmm. like watches mm-hmm. to being a retailer of something that you love because so many things change for you or at least for me in terms of like what I thought was true or my perception of how this business operates yeah so it's been it's been a very fascinating and humbling journey, you know, and, and the thing, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is excluding, you know, the gigantic multi-shot, multi-store chains, your local authorized dealer does a lot more for you, the collector, than I think anybody gives them credit for. And I don't know that people fully appreciate the 
financial and emotional capital that gets invested in just being able to have this inventory available for someone to check out. Yeah. And as I've learned more about that, my respect for people, especially independent retailers that take flyers on, on new brands, like what, what they're really risking is a lot more than I think people give them credit for. And it, it really shows that like ADs are in many ways a critical element of the backbone of our, of our community and our culture. I mean, not to blow up my own spot here, but like, I think I, I completely identify with that even just with standard age with regards of, you know, I think we were talking about this at, at some point, maybe even yesterday when we were just touching base about today's chat, but you know, I'll release only a few things and, mm-hmm. you know, quantity, right? Like I'll, I'll do a mm-hmm. small run of something just to kind of test the market. Like are people into this shit or not, you know? And then I go full, you know, into it, you know, from a production standpoint. So like mm-hmm. the risk of me doing it in a small, it, and to me, it, it makes sense to do it that way, even though financially it's a lot more expensive to produce fewer items than it is to do a lot. But then there is like, okay, so for example, let me give you an example. Somebody asked a friend of mine, um, shout out Patrick in New York, actually. Uh, He was like, look, man, I love your hoodies. I love the fabric, but I don't want a hoodie. I just want a sweatshirt. So I'm like looking at developing a crew neck sweatshirt. And by the way, thank you for wearing the one you're wearing, the lightweight XK I, I sweatshirt. I wear this all the time, man. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> but I, I personally want a thicker one as well. And then I found out my buddy Patrick did. Well, the only fabric I had left over from my hooded sweatshirt was enough to make one crew neck sweatshirt. So that sample is being made right now. It's like the Hanukkah story, man. Suddenly from one crew neck came (laughs) eight. Exactly. Do we have enough oil? Um, So uh, the thing is, is that like, okay, so where I was going with this is, is like, oh yeah, you know, like if you want one and I know I want one, maybe I could just make two and send you one because we did a trade on a product that he offers. Anyway, long story long, um, I had to hit him up and I said, Patrick, guess what, man? Like I, I only have enough fabric to make one. And the problem is, is I've made this promise to you that it would be yours. So now you are going to have a one of one so far crew neck mm-hmm. sweatshirt from standard age, because otherwise I would have had to buy a thousand yards of this fabric. Yeah. So yeah, it's man. like, you want to talk about, is a thing. yeah, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. And, and it's about that investment. And then the emotional investment on top of that, of me being like, how bad do I want this crew neck sweatshirt even for myself, you know? And like, it's kind of that way with watches providing it from people. Like what is my emotional implication or your emotional implication to what I have to do to give you what you want? Well, so that's the other, and I'm I'm curious if you go through this with standard H as well, but there's a fascinating. So, okay. So when we think about collective, there's, there's kind of two, there's two ways we make money essentially. We make collaborative watches, which are really Gabe and I finding an idea with a watchmaker that we admire and bringing something to life that we believe in, that we like, that's, you know, that, that is something that we hope is, is that other people will appreciate. Mm-hmm. We never know. We just hope. Right. But then there's the other side of the business, which is retail. And retail is interesting to me because in that context, like, I'm not buying for myself anymore. Right. 
Now I'm buying for what I think other people want. So you have this interesting, obviously there's overlap, like I'm not going to buy stuff that I wouldn't be proud to sell, but within the line of, of, watch, of you know, Watchmaker X or Watchmaker Y, I have to choose what I'm going to buy, you know? Yeah. And um, that's been a really interesting like reset of my brain between I'm going to put my, ch- you know, with, with, with collective collaborations, like this is an expression of Gabe, it's an expression of me, this is the watch that I will and, and want to wear, like this is the watch I want to make. Versus, you know, retail where I'm like, uh, you know, some of the watches that I sell, you know, I'll give you an example, like For Fear is a brand that I love. The watch that we sell the most of is, you know, is not my favorite watch it's not your favorite. that they make. Yeah. I, yeah, but it doesn't really matter because everybody else likes it. Right. Well, it's interesting you should ask the question or at least insinuate that if it applies to standard, standard age, because I've talked about this ad nauseum, I think, um, about the theory of chasing demand. So like when Mm -hmm. I first launched the brand, I had this logo. So I started with a hat, then I put on some t-shirts and everybody kept saying, I love the logo. I love the logo. Mm -hmm. But what I started to do is I started to chase demand thinking that I could create products that I think people want. And what I found Mm -hmm. was, oh man, I mean, I love the logo. I just don't wear logos. And so I was like, well, great. Now I've got this inventory full of logoed shit and nobody wants to buy it because they don't wear logos. They just were respecting the design. So I then was like, okay, well then I need to take a step back. I need to like save up some more money so that I can actually produce the products that I personally wanted to produce from day one that I didn't yeah. because I misread the audience and thought that they wanted the thing they said was cool. And so that's how the Avant t-shirt came out is that that was the stuff that I wanted to do from day dot as it were. And then the long sleeve. And then, so then as Wesley customer, number one of standard H is like, now I refuse to make anything that I don't want to wear. So it wouldn't surprise me that the collective collaborative watches Mm -hmm. might sell better than something that you're just keeping stock in. Because I think that's the brand, right? Like, that's what collective well, is. Yeah. Not I, to say you shouldn't carry other brands in stock. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying, like, I think the thirst for what you guys create is what makes you special because you're creating it. I don't I don't disagree with you. And it's changed the way that we think about who we partner with. Mm-hmm. You know, one key one key lesson that we learned over the last three years in particular is you know, we started, I think we started this the way that anyone would start this business, which is, well, who, you know, well, let's make a list of every brand we want to work with. And what we discovered pretty quickly, actually, is that it, the, the brand, I mean, of course the brand matters, but that's not the driving force behind what's going to make a good watch. What, what the driving force is, is if the person, like the human you're working with at, at that company like is really a good collaborator and into the idea and wants it to be good, mm-hmm. not an order. And where that's led us are to makers that weren't on that original list, but are so much better than people that were. Interesting. And that, you know, and that's someone like, I mean, you're, you just had a guest on, you know, Claude Griesler. You know, Claude is an incredible collaborator, a really cool dude. Yeah. And makes amazing watches. And, Armin Strom was definitively not on my list in 2018. <laughs> right. 
much to you know, and that that's a that's a signal of my own um, you know uh, immaturity at the time as a collector. I would argue, um, not anything about them, um, but I'm confident that the watch we made with them is better than something that we would have made with with so many of the other brands that were on our target list. So, sure. um, to your point, you know. It, I, I'm willing to roll the dice on someone that I think is going to make something incredible. And when I say roll the dice, I mean, I'm really rolling dice here. Yeah. You know, like it's not <laughs> whether anybody buys these watches or not. Like I still have to pay. Yeah. Invoice. You're still on the hook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, so, that's the similarity with standard age. Like now I'm buying, 100%. I'm buying deep into the XK sweatshirt. You know what I mean? And now I'm sitting yeah. on inventory, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's very, it's, it's very intense to be in that moment where you are very proud of something, but are keenly aware that the money that you've put into it is, is your money and nobody's going to bail you out. You know, there is no safety net and that's, um, it's scary. It's stressful. Yeah. It's so scary. And it's, it's these moments where, you know, as a, as a business, I mean, you know, you talk about this a lot on your show and, and I think it's impossible to explain until you've <laughs> experienced it yourself. Mm-hmm. But it's one thing when you work for a big company and you see these invoices coming across your desk and they go to accounts receivable and accounts payable, and blah, blah, blah. It's a whole other ball game when it's your bank account, you know? <laughs> y- yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's no, there's no alternative. So the investing in creativity is, is it's not just like, Oh, this would be a cool project. And I really like what they do. It's, I'm going to take a not insignificant part of my life savings and, and put it here because I think that this is something special. Yeah. And, you know, going back to my earlier point about like ADs or independent clothing stores or things like that really being a backbone of a community, like, what those people are doing is they they are taking the gamble and the financial risks so that you can have the enjoyment of discovery. Right. And I don't mean that to wag your to wag a finger at anybody because nobody owes anyone anything in terms of like what you buy or what you don't. But in appreciation, I think for what those people do for the community of makers out there is something that I think often gets lost in the "why didn't my Snoopy arrive" conversation. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's a very valid point. What, um, I mean, speaking of production and such, how do you guys go about choosing what you do next? Um, uh, we, uh, take a lot of ayahuasca and go into the woods. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, so we, I need an invitation for that. I feel like I could use it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We go, we go on a vision quest. The old reset Um, button. (laughs) Um, we have a long roadmap. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely gratified to say, you know, with watches um, on the with planned projects in various states of completion between now and, um, you know, towards the end of uh, 2024. And these projects often take anywhere from 18 months on the short end to three years on the long end mm-hmm. to bring to life. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really have to plan, plan out. And, you know, Gabe and I have different styles and tastes. You know, Gabe is more tool watch oriented, for example. So if you love the IWC, you have Gabe to thank for that, not me. 
um, you know, and I tend to be more uh, independent focused, you know, so I, I like to sniff around in the indie watch world to find what I think is special and interesting and curious. And Gabe really focuses on, you know, what, what he loves, which is, you know, that sub $10,000 tool watch world and, and, and bringing something unique and special to life in there. So I think we complement each other well and like who he wants to chase and who I want to chase tend to be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And we both kind of give each other freedom in those areas because, you know, the C3 is a much better watch with him designing it with Christian than it would have been with me. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, with Erwerk and with Armin Strom in particular, Gabe really loved it, but it, it's like, those aren't brands that he really, you know, like he just, he wouldn't, he didn't, he didn't know them as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think he was just sort of like, this is interesting and cool, but like never in a million years have I thought about buying an Erwerk. So, right. You know, lead the way, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we have a watch coming out this year. That's uh, that's sub five thousand dollars that that he really did the design on, and I think it's amazing, and I love it, and I'm gonna buy one for myself. You know, but um, but again, it, he knows the brand that we're doing it with inside and out in a way that I don't, and um, it shows in that in that watch. Cool. Well, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> you and I were talking about backyards and chronographs yesterday. Yeah. What's your philosophy on buying and selling from your own personal collection? Sure. Um, I am very public about and believe very strongly that we should um, destigmatize selling watches at any point, which is to say, if you've owned a watch for two months and you've experienced it, and that's the core for me of collecting. Collecting sure. is about, for me, is about experience. You know, um, I've owned hundreds of watches, and my experience of owning those watches helps me make better choices mm -hmm. about what I want to keep, but also what I want to make. Yeah. Um, I think this attitude that we see from brands of like, you may not sell this watch ever. How dare you? Right. I find um, not only deeply offensive, but frankly counterproductive to the watch industry. Because nine times out of 10, when someone is selling a watch, they're going to go buy another watch. Right. And this concept that we all have to constantly invest but never divest is ridiculous. It's just, it's absurd. So... To me, you know, sometimes things need to move around. And, you know, one of my, what we were taught, you know, you referenced backyards. Like it was, you know, it was, we, we bought a house here in California a couple of years ago. And, you know, backyard needed a lot of work. And, uh, you know, the, the, I had money in a, in a chronograph to pay for it. And the chronograph sold and I have the backyard. It doesn't take away the experience of me owning that chronograph. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, but the backyard is, is more important for my family at this stage in my life. And I think brands in general spend so much time chasing and in some cases degrading their clients mm -hmm. for doing something that they not only have the legal right to do, but quite frankly, is none of the brand's business. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the sooner that we can get away from making collectors feel bad about this, the better it's going to be. That said, and I will caveat this. I understand why a brand would be annoyed if they're, if the demand for a watch is very high and the allocation process is laborious and then many of the watches that they've allocated are immediately then resold because it's frustrating to receive hundreds of emails saying, can I have it, can I have it, can I have it, say no so many times and then find out that the people you finally did allocate it to 
are are attempting to resell it. I understand the emotional component of that. Yeah. Even if I would argue that the that they that no one has a business leg to stand on in that context. Right. But to that end, Collective has only you know, we we encourage people if they want to get out of their watches that they can sell them. We'll even resell them for them. The only caveat to that is if you buy a watch from us and the like the day you get it, you've immediately resold it. Yeah. And we see that as a pattern right. over time. Right. Then we may remove you from from being able to buy. But again, it has to be a pattern. Because sometimes you get a watch and you open it and it's just not for you. Right. And that's okay. Like that is so okay. Right. And something tells me given the I guess membership, if I if I can call it that, with regards mm. to the collective, something tells me that if that were to happen, you know, I order a watch, I take mm. delivery of it, I open it up and been like, ooh, this is not a bit of me. Mm-hmm. Chances are, I'm gonna text you, call you, email you, and say, "Look, man, like, ah, you know, like, I, I'm gonna communicate that sentiment." Yeah, but the thing is, I also want people not to be like. It it, it makes me sad when uh, a client of ours or a member or whatever will reach out to us and be like, "Oh man, I'm so sorry." Like, God, I just I can't believe I need to do this, but I'm selling mother watch. I'm like, you don't need to feel bad. Right. Like, it's right. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You already you paid me for this. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, this, like, there's this just weird negativity and judgment that is sometimes built into watch collecting around something that that nobody has anyone has any right to have business on, which is like the personal finances of that collector. Yeah, you know, like that's nobody's business. Sure. And if the collector did what they were supposed to do, and they if they bought a watch from from dealer A or brand X or person Z, and they paid for that watch and they completed that transaction. The watch is theirs. Right. And I, I just, I, 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 it is, I am on a mission to destigmatize this. Yeah. Well, we haven't even touched on that, which we're starting to wrap up here, but how do you become a member of the collective horology group? So when we first started the, you know, the model was different. The model really was about like, we're going to have 50 guys or, and women who are, you know, and we're going to make 50 pieces every year. And that's that. And if you don't buy a piece from us, you know, every two years, we're going to uh, we're going to have to remove you. And what we we realized two things very quickly. First of all, like that is completely disrespectful to somebody's finances, because how could you possibly budget for something that you don't know the price of every two years? That's right. Ridiculous. Right. Right. And number two, you know, because we want such diversity in our design, like we're not we don't have a house style. We're not making the collective version of X, Y or Z. It's impossible to know if there will be a watch to your taste every two years. So that didn't make any sense. Right. Which, um, but the real reason that we were doing that was that we wanted to have an insular community where people felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. So over time, like the, requ- the requirements, quote unquote, for becoming a member have, have greatly diminished. And now really ultimately what we've learned is that most people that want to be part of our community are great people. Yeah. And we want them. So at this point, to, be, to join Collective, which essentially gives you access to this community, to access to future watches before they go on sale publicly, um, all you need to do is buy a collaborative watch from us and tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, and then we can do, bring you into the community. If you want to participate in it, that's great. And if you just want to be able to collect these watches, that is okay too. Mm-hmm. So I think part of it has been reevaluating what my definition of participatory community means. Yeah. And whether that's important. So nowadays, if you want a collective watch, it really is when you see the one that you like, you know, if any strike your fancy, buy it, 
tell us a little bit about yourself, you'll join the group, and then you'll always know about subsequent collaborative watches first. We also tell all of our members about um, uh, retail watches that we are offering first. So the goal is, you know, we want it to be a reciprocal relationship. You know, you have supported us, you're investing in us. We want to be able to give you something back, which is force, you know, foresight about what's coming and visibility. Because one of the challenges of watch culture these days is sometimes like an amazing watch will come out and you have to make a split second decision. Like, is the design work for you? Can you afford it? And if you can't make those decisions up in a couple of minutes, the decision's made for you. Yeah. And I, I don't like that. So I think giving people the ability to think about it is is critical. Yeah. No, I love that. Well, listen, man, I know I could I could go on forever and talk to you about I mean, we didn't touch on knives, we didn't touch on cars. Uh you you do collect knives, so let's touch on it. Sure. Yeah. Why knives? Uh so in April of 2020, um when uh I was readjusting to my new normal. Um, I was looking for another hobby, um, mostly because I, I just wanted a good pocket knife. Like I didn't have a good pocket knife and like anything, like anyone starting, you know, I want a good, I want a good car. I want a good watch, right? Like you, you start to peel back a layer and you see that there's an entire world there that you didn't know about. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap, um, I think, between watches and knives because there's so much machine work and handwork that goes into a lot of these objects um, that, relative to watches, are significantly more affordable in many ways, but are um, but are equally beautiful pieces of artwork, um, utilitarian, you know, artwork. And um, I fell into that community, and it was interesting because, like, a lot of people that I ran into in that community come from a very different place than I do, you know. Um, like socially and politically, like I'm pretty left wing liberally as a person. And uh, there's a lot of people in that community that are more conservative and right wingy. And what was really interesting and cool about that was that even in the midst of a, of a very like rough year socially in the United States, I got more exposure to being able to talk to people who were different than me Mm -hmm. and hear alternative perspectives presented in a much more just honest and respectful and human way through knife collecting than anything else. So for, it's funny. It's like, I, you know, I don't obsessively collect knives the way I do watches. Like I'll occasionally buy a knife now, maybe once every year or so versus watches, which is way more than that. (laughs) Right. Um, but I enjoy being part of that community because it's nice to be part of a place that doesn't look like me or sound like me hmm. or an echo chamber of what I believe or what I think, you know? Yeah, that's true. Um, and, and I also feel like sometimes like in those communities, they get a real kick that like California liberal guy is super excited about his new, you know, his <laughs> new knife. <laughs> With the camo so handle. I, yeah, totally. You know, it's just like, yeah. And I'm like, yes, don't worry. Like liberals like knives too. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But so I, I, um, I, I've, I really, I really liked that. And, um, in fact, my collect and, and collecting knives is what led us to the design loosely of, uh, the Armin Strom that we released. So, oh, funny. you know, inspiration can come from all sorts of places. Yeah, that's great. Asher, thanks so much for your time, dude. Um, oh, this was so much fun. Thank you for, for letting me talk. I've, uh, I was very kind to you. Um, no, my pleasure always is. Uh, I, think we should maybe mention the event that we've got coming up just due to the fact yeah. that this will be uh, released hopefully just before the event. Absolutely. Um, so uh, we're going to be doing together 
um, one of uh, one of several pop-up shops that Collective will be hosting um, with friends this year. Um, this one will be on February 9th in Hollywood in Los Angeles in the afternoon. More details will come out, including venue, et cetera, but um, we would very much love to see you. We, Collective, will have Fears on display, James Lamb on display, and uh, potentially a secret, which will be fun to share. Right. Um, and uh, and you want to talk a little bit about what you're going to have on site? Yeah. I mean, basically, I'm, I'm treating this pop-up as basically um, – the same approach I have at wind up, which is everything's going to be there to touch and feel and try on and pick out your sizes. And, um, yeah, so come check it out. Uh, if you are on the standard H email list, you are dialed in, you will get more information on that. And if not, then sign up for the email list (laughs) and uh, same, same if you're on the collective list. Um, and, uh, we will, we'll be sending out lots of information about this. I'm sure this will not be the only time, We'll be together. Um, I, I anticipate we'll see each other at uh, Wind Up as well. But um, for sure, our hope is uh, to continue not just working with you, but bringing in other folks that uh, that we really admire, so that we can all we can all help each other and, and uh, introduce our brands to, to folks. Awesome. Well, like I said, thanks so much, Asher, and uh, looking forward to the event. I will see you very soon. <laughs> looking forward to it, my friend. Good thanks deal. For having me. Yeah. Okay. See ya. This wraps up this episode of the Standard Age Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd love it if you'd share it with a friend or two. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover these episodes. It absolutely helps far more than you realize. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. Take care.